Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we come to you in this moment knowing that in order to receive the maximum benefit that you want us to know and to enjoy over these next moments, that we need to ask you for help. My pastoral hero, John Owen, likes to say we, we provoke you when we seek to study Scripture without first asking for your blessing upon it. So we don't want to do that. We don't want to provoke you. We want to invite you to come and to unlock our imaginations. Help us to think about this passage rightly. Help us to go where this passage goes. Help us not to go beyond this passage. I pray that we would understand carefully what this scripture says, how Jesus is in the center of it, and then what this looks like, Lord, in, in these next 24 hours, this next several days, this next week in between the holidays as we spend time with family members, friends, neighbors, others who may be religious but missing some pieces. Lord, this is so very relevant to us. Help me not to get in the way of this. Give me the gift of, of self-forgetfulness and to dive into this passage and into this congregation that I love so much. Be now with us, I pray for Jesus' sake. Amen. Well, for those of you who may be joining us for the first time uh, this month, it's been our privilege to be in a sermon series recently entitled Sent into Advent, a study of evangelism in Luke chapter 20. And the reason why we're tackling evangelism this season, the, the sharing of the good news of Jesus with those who have yet to embrace him, the reason why we're doing that this season is that evangelism sets the trajectory for this entire chapter and everything that's going to unfold within it. Uh, remember, at this point in Luke's gospel, we are already well into the Passion Week. Jesus is just days from his crucifixion. And Jesus says in Luke 20, verse 1, it reminds us that one day Jesus was teaching the people in the temple and preaching the gospel to them. That's the setting. Gospel preaching. This is an evangelistic encounter with the Savior Himself. And what's so remarkably sweet about this particular uh, sermon series is that this portion of the Bible has dovetailed beautifully with the Advent season and with the Christmas celebration that is upon us. I don't know how much it crosses your mind, but the Lord has undeniably designed Advent in a peculiar way that Advent and evangelism would go hand in hand because we pray for God to open gospel doors all year long. But during Advent, those doors are open wider than usual. Once again, we're going to get a little bit of mileage out of this big idea this week. We pray for God to open gospel doors all year long. But during Advent, those doors are open wider than usual. Colossians chapter 4, verses 2 to 6 is a passage I tend to think of during the Advent season, and it goes like this. Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us that a door may be opened for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear, which is how I ought to speak. 
And Paul says, walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer each person. I'm telling you, that's Advent to me. Prayer, care, share. We've said it once, we've said it at least four times this month. Get on your knees for your list of five, move your feet toward your list of five, and then open your mouth to your list of five. Well, these last three weeks, we've had the opportunity to look over the shoulder of Jesus as he mixes it up with lost people. And we've seen him do some things, but rather simple things, yet powerful things, that if we learn to do them and implement them in our lives, these next few days even, God might be pleased to use them in a significant way as we seek to say a good word for our King this Christmas. You know, there's, there's no question that if you know Jesus, that He is your Savior, He is your substitute, because He suffered and, and shed His blood for you on the cross. A thousand amens to that. Praise God that's true. But Jesus is not only our substitute. We who are so clear that Jesus is our substitute sometimes lose the fact that Jesus is also our example. 1 Peter 2.21 For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example that you might follow in His steps. Or 1 John chapter 2, verses 5 and 6, the Apostle John is taking on the matter of assurance of salvation. How you can know that you know that you know that you're a Christian. And here's how he puts it in 1 John 2, 5 and 6. By this we know that we are in Him. Whoever says he abides in Him ought to walk in the same way in which He walked. So how do we know if we're really Christians? Well, we walk like Jesus walked. So we, we pray for God to open gospel doors all year long, but during Advent, those doors are open wider than usual. And as we've studied Luke chapter 20, observing the example of our Lord in whose steps we would like to walk, we've been developing something of a strategy, an evangelistic strategy as we head into the holidays. Ask questions, that's verses 1 to 8. Tell stories, that's verses 9 to 18. Even talk politics, that's verses 19 to 26. But always, always impart gospel hope. That's the focus today. Ask questions, tell stories, even talk politics, but always seek to impart gospel hope. And that particular gospel hope is going to be found in the form of the biblical teaching concerning the resurrection this morning. So here's the first of two further points to help us on our mission this holiday week. Point number one, take heart this Christmas. Jesus also had religious relatives who denied precious gospel truths. Take heart this Christmas because Jesus also had religious relatives who denied precious gospel truths. Do you look with me at this time as we consider verses 27 to 33? There came to him some Sadducees, those who deny that there is a resurrection. They asked him a question saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies, having a wife but no children, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now there were seven brothers. The first took a wife and died without children. And the second, and the third took her, and likewise all seven left no children and died. 
Afterward, the woman also died. In the resurrection, therefore, whose wife will the woman be? For the seven had her as a wife. Take heart this Christmas. Jesus also had religious relatives who denied precious gospel truths. Verse 27 begins with these words. There came to him some Sadducees who deny there is a resurrection. We haven't seen the Sadducees yet in Luke's gospel. This is the first appearance. It's the only appearance, actually, of the Sadducees in the entire gospel of Luke. Luke does mention them five separate times in the book of Acts. Well, the Sadducees were religious splinter group within the Jewish priesthood that emerged perhaps a hundred years or so before Jesus was born. And unlike the rap they usually get, the Sadducees were religious conservatives. I often hear them pegged as religious liberals. They, they weren't liberals. They, they were conservative. But they weren't the leading conservative faction in first century Judaism. That distinction was worn very proudly by the Pharisees. In some sense, we know more about the Sadducees from the pages of Scripture in terms of what they were against when, than what they were for. They're a little bit of a mysterious group uh, to some degree. So, for example, we read in verse 27 that the Sadducees are those who deny there is a resurrection. Uh, later on in the book of Acts, which is Gospel of Luke part 2, uh, in Acts chapter 23, verse 8, uh, Luke sets the Sadducees and the Pharisees off against one another when he says, For the Sadducees say that there is no resurrection, nor angel, nor spirit, but the Pharisees acknowledge them all. Luke gives us a lot, actually, in that little verse about what the Sadducees don't believe, a little bit of, about their doctrine. Not only did the Sadducees not affirm the resurrection, they also denied the existence of angels altogether, as a matter of fact, the Sadducees appeared to oppose the reality of the entire spiritual realm. These guys were hardcore materialists. Historians also tell us that uh, related to the Old Testament revelation that the Sadducees only accepted the Pentateuch. That's the first five books of the Bible, the books of Moses. That was inspired scripture for them, but nothing else. And you think, well, that sounds liberal to me. Actually, it's so conservative were they that they looked with suspicion upon the prophets, upon developments like the historical books or the Psalms or the wisdom literature. So this sets them off against the Pharisees and the scribes for sure. But what's interesting to note here is that as far apart as these guys were theologically in first century Judaism, they are one as it relates to their common concern about Jesus. In fact, this demonstrates for us as much as anything how threatening the Jewish leadership as a whole perceived Jesus to be. Jesus made co-belligerence out of the Pharisees and Sadducees. That is, strange bedfellows of these competing factions to one another. When it comes to Jesus, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, though, they had each other's back. Now let's take a closer look at verse 27 what it reads, because this, this deserves our careful attention. 20, 20, 27. There came to him some Sadducees who deny there is a resurrection. Notice these men don't merely doubt that there is a resurrection. Luke is very deliberate with his words. He always is. They deny that there is a resurrection. The Pharisees aren't apprehensive about or confused concerning the resurrection. 
they're not having difficulty with or they're hesitant or uncertain about what they believe about the resurrection. They categorically deny that there is a resurrection. They entirely dismiss it. The word for deny here that Luke uses in verse 27 is a compound Greek word that when you break it down literally means to speak against. They spoke against the resurrection. It's a word that's used uh, 10 different places across the pages of the New Testament. When you put them together, it provides a composite sketch of what these men felt about this doctrine. What we learn is that the Sadducees here oppose the doctrine of the resurrection. They resist it. They contradict it. They object it. They argue against the doctrine of the resurrection. These men are hostile to resurrection. That's what's going on here. That's the reason why this matters so much. It's because the resurrection is such a precious gospel truth. You know, I took my first run at putting together uh, the words for these points for today's sermon. I initially wrote point one this way. Take heart this Christmas. Even Jesus had religious relatives who deny fundamental gospel truths. That's what the outline said until late on Friday. I believe that. I have no problem with the word fundamental. It's a solid, sturdy, durable word to describe the centrality and the non-negotiability of the resurrection. Amen. But as they say in the NFL, upon further review, upon further reflection, it occurred to me pretty deep into Friday afternoon that was not the word that we needed here. Although fundamental is true, it's fundamental. We don't dispute that in this church. The resurrection is a fundamental gospel truth. It's just that it's so much more. It's a precious gospel truth. One resource I read, consulted, said that precious is an adjective used of something of great value, not to be wasted or treated carelessly. So fundamental means basic, essential, rudimentary, necessary. Without a doubt, that's resurrection. But precious means inestimable, prized, beloved, cherished, treasured. And the doctrine of resurrection is all of these things as well. See, we can read verse 27 that the Sadducees deny there is a resurrection and treat the doctrine merely as fundamental, in which case we might appropriately be combative against those who deny it. But when we read in verse 27 that the Sadducees deny that there is a resurrection, well, we believe that that resurrection, that doctrine is also very, very precious. And that means that we don't nearly only need to be combative, but concerned. To have compassion. These men are pigs and they're handling pearls. As many of you know, our family got a puppy last summer. He's a, he's a morky. Uh, that's, a, that's a mix of a Maltese and a Yorkie. He's a cute little thing. And his name is Theo. I call him Theophilus although I don't have the rest of my family on board with that. His name is Theo. Like any puppy, he eats anything that's available to him, even things that are not available to him. In fact, he knows how to get onto a kitchen table chair and then vault himself onto the kitchen table and take anything off it he wishes. And at one point, evidently, I'm not sure how it had happened, but I'd left the house without my wallet. 
And he was able to get a hold of my wallet and to fish out a Christmas gift that I'd just been given a day before, a Christmas gift in the form of a $50 bill. And he ripped it clean in two. Our neighbor who works for Wells Fargo has assured us that you can actually bring the pieces to the bank and they will give you a new bill. So it has a happy ending, I guess. But I couldn't help but thinking that some people treat precious gospel truths like our little Theo treats $50 bills. Viciously. With no respect for what they're tearing apart. It's pathetic, really. There came to him some Sadducees who deny there is a resurrection. I'll never forget my, my old friend Al Davis, who some of you might remember. Al used to say to me, the Sadducees deny there is a resurrection, and that's why they are sad, you see. It's a clever little pun, but it's true. You should never forget that. That was true of these men. When someone denies precious gospel truths, yes, our dukes ought to go up, but our hearts ought to go out. This is heartbreaking. It's so sad because if there's no resurrection of the dead, then not only, not even Christ has been raised, 1 Corinthians 15, 13. If there's no resurrection of the dead, then my preaching is in vain and all of your faith is in vain, 1 Corinthians 15, 14. If there's no resurrection from the dead, then we are found to be misrepresenting God because we preach that God did raise him from the dead. And our faith is futile, and we're still in our sins if there's no resurrection from the dead. 1 Corinthians 15, 15, and 15, 17. If there is no resurrection from the dead, then our loved ones in Christ have utterly perished. 1 Corinthians 15, 18. And if there's no resurrection from the dead, if in Christ we have hope in this life only, then we are pitiable. We are of most people to be pitied. 1 Corinthians 15, 19. I read in my devotions yesterday, if there's no resurrection from the dead, there's no new birth. There's no one that's ever been born again. 1 Peter 1, 3. If there's no resurrection from the dead, then the Christian life is completely impossible. 1 Corinthians 1, or excuse me, 1 Peter 1, 22 to 23. You see, Jesus had religious relatives who denied precious gospel truths. And I suspect that just like our family do, who we have a plan to see over this next week as we travel, that you're going to see some family over the course of this next week. You may have in your family some left-leaning evangelicals who deny that heterosexual monogamy is the only biblical vision for marriage and they're flirting with, if not embracing, so-called same-sex marriage. Or as Doug Wilson so aptly puts it, same-sex mirage. Roman Catholics who deny that justification is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Maybe liberal Protestants in your family who deny nearly everything that you regard as precious in the Bible, including the authority of the Scriptures themselves, or the, the utter exclusivity of Jesus, or the necessity of salvation to begin with. So this passage teaches us to take heart. You're not alone. You may not be able to stand in solidarity with family members on these matters, but rest assured, you do stand with Jesus. Now let's look briefly at the question they ask him so we can set up point two. Verses 28 to 33, we read, And they asked him a question saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies 
Having a wife but no children, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now there were seven brothers. The first took a wife and died without children, and the second and the third took her. And likewise, all seven left no children and died. Afterward, the woman also died. In the resurrection, therefore, whose wife will the woman be? For the seven had her as a wife. So the teaching of Moses that the Sadducees are referencing here is what's known as leveret marriage. Leveret marriage. New Testament scholar Daryl Bach explains leveret marriage this way. He says, if a man dies childless, his brother was to take the wife and raise up the child of the deceased brother, and then the child would, uh, would carry on the dead brother's name and heritage. There are several examples of Leverite marriage in the Bible, interestingly. Uh, Onan and Tamar in Genesis 38. Boaz and Ruth probably are the most well-known example of Leverite marriage. That's Ruth chapter 4. Leverite marriage was a well-established practice within Judaism, both for the protection of women in ancient Israel as well as for the, uh, the, the security of the family inheritance. Uh, Leverite marriage, this practice, is not what's in question here. Rather, the question is the sort of pressure that the teaching of leveret marriage puts on the doctrine of resurrection when it's taken to an absurd length offered here by the Sadducees. Seven brothers in succession all provide this um, opportunity for the brother who's died, or six brothers for the brother who died. Married all to just one woman. It's a ridiculous illustration, but they're trying to make a point. If someone's had more than one spouse, pray tell, to whom they will be married in this resurrection that you speak of. Aren't we going to have polygamy everywhere on the other side, in other words? And they think they've got him. I mean, no one's been able to nail Jesus down in chapter 20 yet, but they think they've got him. Well, perhaps this is your experience with family over the holidays as well. Perhaps you have relatives that go to irrational or nonsensical lengths just to stand in opposition to you and to the gospel that you believe. Here's what we need to see. Jesus knows what this is like. You know, Hebrews 4.15 assures us that we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted as we are in all ways, yet without sin. So this first point is simply and wonderfully to say, he gets it. Jesus gets you and your situation this week. He's been there. Take heart this Christmas. Jesus had religious relatives who denied precious, precious gospel truths. You're not alone. Second point today. Take action this Christmas. And like Jesus among religious relatives, clarify and confirm precious gospel truths. Don't just take heart. Take heart, but take action this Christmas. And like Jesus among religious relatives, clarify and confirm precious gospel truths. Now here's where we need to pay attention. If you take comfort that Jesus gets you, that he understands this situation entirely, but if you're wanting to go a step further and you're wondering, but what do you do? What do you actually say when you have a relative who's in a situation like this? How do you respond? Who isn't just skeptical of precious gospel truths, they're cynical toward precious gospel truths. And they're religious, that's the kicker. What do you do then? 
They're hostile to precious gospel truths, downright hostile. What do you do then? Well, first, clarify the truth for them. And secondly, confirm the truth for them. We'll take each in turn. First, clarify the truth. Jesus says in verses 34 to 36, And Jesus said to them, The sons of this age marry and are given in marriage. But those who are considered worthy to attain to that age and to the resurrection from the dead neither marry nor are given in marriage, for they cannot die anymore because they are equal to angels and are sons of God, being sons of the resurrection. What's he doing here? He's clarifying precious gospel truth. Isn't that the first move he makes? It's fascinating. Jesus doesn't walk away from what is a preposterous question. They don't care about this guy, these seven guys and this gal in this family. They don't care. They're using this to trap him. And he doesn't walk away from their question. He walks right toward it. And he tells them a few things that define and elucidate and illuminate the, the nature of resurrection life so that they might have a fuller picture. In fact, here in verses 34 to 36, Jesus tells us a few things that define and elucidate and illuminate the nature of resurrection life in the kingdom for us. First thing we can say here, based on this passage, is that death ends a marriage. And not only just a marriage, but all marriage, except for one. The Apostle Paul writes in Romans 7, 2-3, a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is still alive. But if her husband dies, she's free from that law. And if she marries another man, she is not an adulteress. We're taught something very helpful here in these verses. That the death of one spouse clearly ends a marriage, ends a marriage in such a way that if the widowed partner seeks to be married again, that they're not a polygamist, either in this life or in the life to come. Similarly, we read in 1 Corinthians 7.39, when Paul declares, a wife is bound to her husband as long as he lives, but if her husband dies, she's free to be married to whomever she wishes, only in the Lord. So here, in verses 34 to 36, Jesus says amazingly that the sons of this age marry and are given in marriage, and, but those who are considered worthy to attain to that age and to the resurrection from the dead neither marry nor are given in marriage, for they cannot die anymore because they are equal to angels and are sons of God being sons of the resurrection. This couldn't be any more important because of what marriage is. Marriage is a reflection. It's an it's an echo it's a pointer towards something far greater than itself marriage is the lifelong drama of one man and one woman in a covenant relationship that reflects the reunion the the union of christ and his church marriage between a man and a woman is a lifelong drama not an eternal one now this is where so many of us become depressed and think I won't be married to him in the kingdom? I won't be married to her anymore? Really? That's incredibly depressing to me. 
You might ask me, am I actually going to officiate at the funeral of a 94-year-old Christian man and tell his deceased widow of 93 years that when she goes to be with the Lord, she and her husband are no longer going to be married? Answer, of course that's what I'm going to tell her. You say, are you a complete monster? No, I'm, I'm a gospel minister. This is the truth about marriage. No, it's not just the truth about marriage. It's the absolutely glorious truth about marriage. Marriage is a lifelong drama, and it can be drama, and it's designed to be lifelong, but no more than a lifetime. Because after this lifetime, it gives away to the beginning of the very best. It's a covenant relationship that reflects. It echoes. It's a commercial for something greater. And that's the marriage, the union between Christ and his bride, Christ and the church. Here's the thing. Insisting on marriage between men and women in the future kingdom would be like insisting on forcing someone to eat an ad in the Laker Pioneer for a thick cut strip, uh, uh, cut of New York strip colored paper and all, instead of serving them the stake itself. Marriage in this life is a portrait to a watching world of something far greater in the next, namely the return of Christ for his bride and the fullness and perfection of joy that awaits each of us in the bride who know, that, who know Jesus at the marriage supper of the Lamb. You'll be there with your spouse, but, but it, your relationship will be turned up a key. It'll be transposed up a key to that of brother and sister, which is the ultimate relationship between men and women in the kingdom. Now, there's several more gems inside of verses 34 to 36 that we don't have time to unearth. But the first step here is just to clarify. That's what he's doing here. He's clarifying precious gospel truths, just like we're thinking in a, perhaps a fresh way about the kingdom. He gave them something to think about. So we can do that. We can, we can unfold precious gospel truths for people, clarifying them. Now Jesus goes on to say in verses 37 to 40, not just clarification, but confirmation. Now Jesus isn't just illustrating. He's going to put bedrock scripture underneath the illustration to show why it is that they should have believed in resurrection to begin with. Jesus says in verse 37, but that the dead are raised, even Moses showed in the passage about the bush, where he calls the Lord the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. Now, he is not the God of the dead, but of the living, for all live to him. Then some of the scribes answered, teacher, you have spoken well, for they no longer dared to ask him any question. Hmm. Now, all I want to say by way of application here is that it is entirely possible that some of your religious relatives deny precious gospel truths simply because they have never had them heard expounded or clarified to them. And it's also possible that your religious relatives also deny precious gospel truths because they've never had anyone take the time to open the Bible and confirm them to them. And I'm not talking about some deep dive into systematic theology here this Christmas with your relatives. I'm talking about something that we all can do. I'm just talking about making plain for them what is so terribly obvious to you 
as you read the Bible and you think about these key, core, precious gospel truths. Take Jesus' handling of Exodus chapter 3, verse 6, for example. That's what he's referencing here. Exodus 3, 6. You know, the Old Testament teaches the doctrine of resurrection. Not everywhere you turn, but as you read through its pages, uh, you'd see it in Job 19. You'd see it clearly in Psalm 16. Without a doubt, you'd see it in Daniel 12 and other places. But what Jesus does here is so very special. He gives the Sadducees a present just for them. Remember, the Sadducees don't regard books like Job or Psalms or Daniel to be the Word of God. So Jesus gives them a portion of the Bible that they do respect, or at least that they say they respect. They can't ignore the Torah, right? And he references Exodus 3.6. It's a powerful move here when he tells the Sadducees, but that the dead are raised, even Moses showed. You guys still respect Moses, don't you? In the passage about the bush, you know where the Lord, he calls the Lord the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. No, he's not the God of the dead, but of the living for all live to him. So perhaps you have that left-leaning evangelical family member. I put evangelical maybe in air quotes there, but this person needs to hear about the beauty of manhood and womanhood and the incredible complementary relationship that men and women are designed to have together in this world, particularly in marriage. Take them to Genesis 2.18 and say it clearly to them. It is not good for man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him, perfectly corresponding to him. And just unfold it for all it's worth. Don't apologize for it. Explain it. Show them the wonder of biblical complementarity between genders. And then show them. Show them in Romans 1 where Paul is explaining the offense of idolatry and how homosexuality is a perfect idolatry of a man falling in love with his own image or a woman falling in love with her own image. It's a perfect idolatry. Clarify and confirm these things in Scripture for them. Or think of your Catholic relatives for a moment. They probably don't have a very lucid understanding of justification by faith. So just take them to passages like Romans 4.5. You know what Romans 4.5 says? Romans 4.5 is offensive to evangelical Christians. And to the one who does not work but believes in Him, who justifies the ungodly. His faith is counted as righteousness. Or take them to Galatians 2.16 or Philippians 3.9 or last week's fighter verse, 2 Corinthians 5.21. For our sake, He made Him to be sin who knew no sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. I've decided that every practicing Catholic deserves their own Martin Luther moment. And I'm not doing this in a corner. I have Catholic family that I love very deeply that I'm going to spend hours with this week. I bought a couple of books for one of them, and we're going to read them together. We're going to talk about them. I deeply respect my Catholic family. I respect them so much to do this. So very many Catholics have never really considered that their own Catholicism calls for the damnation of a person who would believe in justification by faith alone. The catechism calls for it. So show them this teaching from the Bible and give them their own Martin Luther movement. 
Say the catechism says this, but the Bible says this. What do you say? Lovingly, look them in the eye and tell them that. That's what Jesus is doing here. Or maybe you've got the liberal Protestant family members. We've got those too. And they're just, their worldview, unlike Roman Catholics, whose worldview is so close to ours. We have so very much in common with Roman Catholics. We have less so with liberal Protestants. Their worldview is on another planet from yours, probably. And just about anything you say about the gospel will sound like a thunderclap of reality to them. So go for it. Even the modest affirmation of biblical truth is going to sound like a megaton of truth. So whatever you do, Horatius Bonar, one of my heroes, once said it this way, speak out and do not be dumb. Speak out fearlessly, nobly, confidently, words of truth, the message of God, the gospel of his grace. Let not the fear of man bring a snare. Let not the trumpet you have given uncertain sound. So speak that no man shall mistake the meaning of your message. Do not blunt or muffle your words. Speak aloud and speak clearly, not mistily, circuitously, or with enticing words of man's wisdom, that the world shall hear, whether they like the sound or not. Lift up your voice, utter your testimony, obey the Lord, and deliver your soul. Amen? Wouldn't you love to get to the end of a holiday with religious relatives and having done that? You could sleep well. Well, let's review. We pray for God to open gospel doors all year long, but during Advent, those doors are open wider than usual. So ask questions, tell stories, even talk politics. But whatever else you do, always, always impart gospel hope. Take heart this Christmas. Even Jesus had religious relatives who denied precious gospel truths. But take action this Christmas and like Jesus among religious relatives, clarify and confirm precious gospel truths. Don't go away. Go toward them. Speak the truth in love and speak it wisely as Jesus does here. Well, tomorrow is Christmas Eve. We plan to gather as a church family at 4 o'clock here in the sanctuary. Hope that you'll make plans to join us then. Looking ahead to one week from today, we'll have the opportunity to hear from Guy Runkle as he plans to open the word for us, and we'll take our next step in the Gospel of Luke then. Please do pray for Guy as he prepares this week. In fact, while we're thinking about it, let's do that right now. Let's pray. Father in heaven, how very much help we need. Lord, as we've thought about evangelism over this last month, as we said last week, for many of us, evangelism is the reverse of easy. It's the reverse of easy because we, we're not making this stuff up. We have inherited this. We have been swept up into this reality called the new birth and resurrection life. And you've put life in us and you've put rock under our feet and you've put a song in our mouth and you've given us a message, a message for dear family members and friends and neighbors and co-workers, classmates. Oh God, I pray that you would help us first, as Jesus does in Luke 20, to ask questions. Smart kids ask questions. Grant that we would be politely curious about people, just diving into their lives, drawing them out, learning more. If we speak before we've heard, it's our folly and shame, Proverbs says. But then secondly, Lord, when we have an opportunity to speak, let's tell some stories. Let's tell the story of the Bible. Let's tell the story of the gospel. Let's tell our testimony story. Let's tell the story of Christians that we know and respect. 
Grant too, Lord, we wouldn't stay away from thorny issues like politics. Jesus, you went right for it. You dealt with a, a big issue of your day. May we not be timid to deal with the big issues on the table in our day. Oh, but above all things, God, may we impart gospel hope. I pray that we would be people, especially as we interact with people with different theologies or different traditions. Lord, it's, we're, we're thrown into these situations at, at Christmas time and holidays and so on. So I, I pray that we would find a way to speak the truth in love and to speak it wisely. That we would walk with wisdom toward those who see things differently than we do and that we'd really major on the majors. Not think about insignificant differences, but if there are significant differences on the table, that we would find a way, just like Jesus did, to clarify and confirm, ask further questions, learn where people are at, and clarify as far as we can and confirm what Scripture indeed says. That's where the power is. We know that to be true in our own lives. Father, thank you for the Scriptures. Be with Guy as he prepares this week, as we gather for worship tomorrow evening as well for one more look at the Gospel of Luke on Christmas Eve. In Jesus' name, amen.